Thank you for uh, the grace that has been poured out upon us. Thank you for Mora and William as they've, they've traveled to a far distant land and it's difficult to be a Mazungu in Africa. But you've called them there and God, I pray that you would bless them in their ministry. We bless Aaron today. 16 years you've graced him with his family, with his life. Father, we pray for many, many, many more and that he will continue to grow into the man of God you have called him to be. We pray for his schooling, that he will continue to excel. We pray for rugby, that he will inflict damage and not incur it. We pray that their ministry would, that they would see the fruit of their ministry and that they would be encouraged in their heart. I want to give you guys a moment if you want to offer a prayer for Maura and Williams, her husband, or Aaron. I would just take a minute and pray. So Father, we, we send them home with the prayers of the saints, with the blessing and the anointing and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's in the name of Jesus that we have called out and prayed. Amen. Amen. All right. So chapter 8, I mean, part 18 this morning of our series in Hebrews. And we're in chapter 8. See why I did that? It's, it's the 18th sermon and the 8th chapter. Yeah, that was wasted on you guys. Okay, so we've spent many weeks unpacking the person of Jesus, who he is, the fact that he's enough. No matter what life throws at you, no matter the storms that rage in our lives, no matter how deep the floodwaters get, no matter how many times we've been knocked down and we try to pick ourselves back up again, we know that Jesus is enough. The scriptures have told us that, they've promised it to us, that Jesus is enough. And this is kind of the, the, the beginning of the book of Hebrews as he is writing to the church, encouraging them because they're taking some heat for their faith. But now the next few chapters from here on out, probably the next three, I believe, it begins to shift their focus a little bit. It begins to look at the work of Jesus, what Jesus accomplished, what he, what he did in his time here on earth. And so what this is all kind of leading up to and letting us catch a glimpse of is the work of Christ on the cross. The cross was a moment in time when everything changed in the world and in the universe when Jesus died on that cross. And so to understand who he is, we have to also understand what he did. They're both uh, two sides of the same coin. And so to kind of get the, the, a little bit of the understanding of where Hebrews 8 is, is hunkering down in, I thought we would start this morning reading out of the book of Revelation. And I'm just going to read. You're not going to have any text up on the screen. Uh, and I want you just to listen to the description that John writes. I'm going to read out of chapter 4, and then I'm going to read chapter 5. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I heard first 
And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. And the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides, and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and looked, he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne, and when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. It's a picture of heaven. It's a picture of the throne of God. It's a picture of where Jesus is now seated in that heavenly place. It's a description of something that we have really no point of reference for 
in our reality. John is trying to describe something that's, that's beyond what we can understand, beyond what we've ever experienced. So he uses things like it seemed like or it looked like because he's describing something that's, that's beyond us. We don't have a full perspective of what heaven or the throne of God is really like. But I can imagine that that day that Jesus ascended back into heaven, his, his homecoming, where he is seated at the right hand of the Father. He's gone from the lamb who, who took away all of the sins of the world, and now he sits there at the right hand of God as our high priest. The, the scriptures say that, that his hair is white as snow, and his eyes are like embers, they burn like flames, and his face is bright as the sun. This is the context that the writer in Hebrews is using, kind of the backdrop for what he's going to talk about, the sanctuary and the tabernacle. So let's get right into Hebrews chapter 8. Now the main point of what we are saying is this. Chapter 7, the end of chapter 7, they talk about, they're talking about Melchizedek and Jesus and how they are a high priest. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. We heard John's description of, of what it was revealed to him, what it, what it looked like. And we see right out of the gate in chapter 8, the writer is telling us that Christ has sat down at the right hand of the Father. And so begins his service as high priest forever. His, his priesthood is superior in every way to everything that has preceded him. Anything that could have existed before him in, in, in human terms is now obsolete because what he has given, what he has accomplished, and what he continues to do is far superior than anything that we can, we can get our, our minds around or, or do. The priesthood of Aaron, Moses' brother, has now kind of gone away and Christ has fulfilled the true priest calling. And we read that he has sat down at the right hand of the Father and it's, it's giving us this flavor that his work on earth is now complete. John chapter 19, the gospel of John. In verse 30, Jesus is dying on the cross and right before he dies, he yells out, it is finished. It is finished. The work that he came to do, the forgiveness of sin was and is completely realized in that moment where he gave his life on the cross. And he has brought us, broken, infinite, imperfect people into the presence of an infinite, perfect, holy God. And we enter into his presence reconciled and whole. Our relationship with the Father has now been reconciled because of our faith and what Christ did on the cross. During the time of the earthly priesthood, the priests would never sit down because their work was never finished. They, would always, they were always offering sacrifices for themselves, for their own sin, and for the sins of the people. Jesus has completed that work. But the fact that he is seated doesn't mean that he's finished working. His work on earth has been completed. But he serves as high priest. 
He is serving in the sanctuary. He is active before the Father. And this place where he is has not been created by human hands or human people. It's not on earth. It's not made out of tent and cloths and silver and gold and rocks like Moses was given uh, the, the directions to build. This is something God has created. And he serves in the sanctuary. Now, what's interesting is it, it kind of rubs against our human propensity. If I was king, I'm thinking if I was exalted as king, I probably wouldn't do a lot of serving. I would rule, and I would rule well, I think. Harley's for everyone in my kingdom. But kings don't serve, they rule. Kings are served. And here we see Jesus, as high priest, serves in the sanctuary. Jesus is serving on our behalf. Jesus is interceding for us. Jesus is serving you and I. We have a God, get this now, we have a God who serves us. Do you hear what I'm saying? God serves us. It's part of his divine nature and character to serve. And a little caveat, side note, if we are his image bearers, then that's part of our nature is to serve. But God is serving me. God is serving you. It's who Jesus is. When he was on earth, he would talk to people that no one wanted to talk to. He, he ate dinner and had meals with the lowest of, of the culture and society, which is a big deal because it means that, that he was affiliating himself with them. It wasn't just a, an act of mercy. He, he loved on them. Jesus laid hands on people who were unclean, unfit to even come into the village, into the town. But Jesus would, would walk with them and lay hands on them because they were ill. And he loved them. And now he is seated at the right hand of the Father atop an emerald throne with a crystal sea of glass being worshipped by millions and millions of angels and he serves there on my behalf. And he serves there on your behalf. God serves me. My God serves me. My God serves each one of you. And you know what aggravates me about that is he doesn't have any favorites. I've always thought I was his favorite. But no, he is, he is serving each one of us the same. We get all of his attention because he's God. He serves me. He serves you. It sounds ridiculous, but it's truth. Take a minute and think about that. Go ahead. Jesus is serving you right now before the Father. Jesus is praying for you right now before the Father. Our God is a God who serves his people. This is the work that Jesus accomplished on the cross. And now the writer will continue. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. 
They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. So Moses goes up to the mountain. He meets with God. God calls, uh, he tells him, pay very careful attention, Moses, to what I'm going to kind of lay out for you. Make sure that as you build this thing, you pay attention to everything and fulfill it to the T. Don't deviate from anything. Don't go left. Don't go right. Just make sure that you, is she okay? Okay, good. That's little Nora. That means the Holy Spirit has come upon her and she's like, woo! And tells Moses, make sure that you just do everything like I told you. In fact, this verse where it says, uh, where does it say? See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. It comes right out of Exodus chapter 25. God told him, make sure you do everything just like the pattern shown you. And now it's a very interesting word, that word pattern. Because it kind of lends itself to maybe that Moses just didn't get a verbal instruction, but he was actually shown models. The Talmud, which is a, a Jewish writing, ancient Jewish writing, says that, these, that, let the, that the, uh, the, the candle abra came down in flames, and the mercy seat would come down in flames, and the altar would come down in flames, and Moses was able to see what he was going to build. Other ancient rabbis would say that the angel Gabriel came down in his worker man uniform and he showed Moses all of the models of what he was to build. And so Moses was to build these things exactly the way he was shown, the pattern in which he was shown. Now, I don't know what the truth is, but what I do know is that God gave Moses and told Moses and showed Moses what he was to build. And everything that he would build in that tabernacle points to Jesus, all of it. The, the, the candelabra that would give light to the holy of holies and the light would shine out through the temple windows. Jesus is the light of the world. Everything would point to the person of Jesus. But everything here on earth was just a copy or a shadow of the reality that is in heaven that one day we will see. One day we will be able to look at. And what the truth of the matter is that we, the church, because of the work of Christ, we possess life, we possess forgiveness and wholeness and light and fearlessness because the perfect sacrifice was made by the perfect priest offered perfectly in a sanctuary that was not built by human hands built by the Lord God himself for the purpose of ministering to us. We have a God who serves us. This is the amazing, scandalous grace of God. But in fact, the ministry of Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one since the new covenant is established on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. Now they're talking about old covenant or the law, new covenant of Jesus, grace and truth. But God found fault with the people and said, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant 
and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. So from verse 8 down, it's coming right out of Jeremiah 31, and the prophet is, is prophesying to the people. The Lord is speaking through this prophet, and he's kind of getting to the fact that the old covenants, the covenant given to Moses, the Ten Commandments, was flawed because the rules cannot make us perfect. It cannot fix us. It cannot heal us. Following the law cannot help us on the inside. It's just something that we're trying to do on the outside. If the law could make us perfect before God, then Jesus is just a nice story, but a wasted story here on earth. We wouldn't need him if we can get it done on our own. So Moses goes up to the mountain, and God gives him the law. He gives him the the old covenant. Well, when he got it, it was the new covenant, but for us, it's the old covenant, and it's the Ten Commandments. And I'm thinking God's like, you know, Mo, let's, let's just give them 10. Let's see how they do with 10, figure it out. Maybe, maybe they'll do okay. And I think he's just hyping Moses up because God knows exactly what's going to happen. But the problem isn't the 10 commandments because the law of God is good. Nothing that God has given us is, is bad or, or inferior. The law of God is good. So the problem isn't with the old covenant. The problem isn't with the Ten Commandments. The problem is that sin has destroyed the human heart. Sin has darkened what God has originally created to be light, and we can't follow the rules. We can't even get the Ten right. And it shouldn't surprise any of us because in the garden, God said, I'm going to give you all this. You can eat all the fruit, fresh mangoes, avocado. I think there was a mayonnaise tree so they can make guacamole, but that's just me. And, and, and it just, you can have all of this. Just, just don't eat from that one tree. And they couldn't even get that right. They had to eat from the tree. So now, let me, let me, let me push some of you a little bit further. For the last dozen or so years of my life, and those of you who've been kicking around here for a while, you might have heard me say this. But I believe something about the law. I believe something about, especially you know, in the realm of the Ten Commandments. But I'm going to present it to you as a what if. Ha-ha, that's what I say. I'm going to present it as a what if. What if God has given us the law, the Ten Commandments? What if God has given us the rules, not so that we could strive for something to follow, Not so that we can hold ourselves up against something and kind of see how we're doing. Not so that we could earn our way back into the good graces of who God is. What if he gave us the Ten Commandments? What if he gave us the Old Covenant to show us that you can't do this? You can't follow the rules. You can't follow the Ten Commandments. It is impossible for you as people to follow the Ten Commandments, to get it right. What if the law was there only to show us that we need a savior? That that we need a savior in order to follow and to press into God's plan. And that our plan and our strength and our determination and and our, our striving and trying is fruitless. We can't get there on our own. What if the Ten Commandments, what if they were just there to show us, you all are really messed up and you need Jesus? What if the law wasn't given to us just so we could obey it, but to show us that without any doubt we can't obey it? 
I mean, think about it. Jesus kind of, Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. But Jesus took the law to a whole different place because the law, old covenant, said don't murder. And Jesus said, man, if you're always angry, aggravated at people, you're just as broken. And the law, old covenant, said you shouldn't lust. And Jesus said, or you shouldn't commit adultery. And Jesus said, man, you got lust in your heart. You're just as broken. Do you see? We, we can't follow the law. We can't keep up with it. My favorite one is this. Keep holy the Sabbath day. Okay, so, so let's just kind of unpack that for a minute. What God is saying originally is, okay, y'all are going to work hard by the sweat of your brow. Child laboring is going to be tough. And so one day out of the week, one day, I want you to stop working. Stop earning. I want you to rest. I want you to, to go out with friends and have, have a nice meal. I want you to chillax a little bit. Not only you, but your animals and your slaves, which would be our children this day, but, but I want your whole household to, to rest and, and focus on me. Focus on who you are with me, not who you're trying to be or trying to strive to be or, or trying to earn. Just, just rest. Church, we don't even do that well. We can't rest. We're a society that doesn't rest. We hate rest, but all we want to ever do is rest. We need a break. In fact, I love the way it's outlined in, in the Old Testament. God says, okay, on the Sabbath, you're going to rest or I'm going to kill you. I mean, and that's basically how he unpacks it. But the reality is, if we're not resting at least one day a week, we're killing ourselves. We're killing ourselves. Do you see where this is going? The law, the old covenant. We can't follow the rules. There are way too many horror stories that I have heard throughout my tenure as a pastor, and even as a Christian, of people belonging to communities of faith that, that, will, that will suck the life out of them because they put impossible hurdles to jump, rules to follow, and they give them nothing to help them through it. They give them nothing. They say, you got to do this to get yourself right with God. And you got to stop doing this to get yourself right with God. And how can God bless you if you're not going to do this and that? And, and, and it becomes this, this merit-based, works-based life. And the people are trying to engage it and live it. And they fail and they fail. And then they pretend they're not failing. And, and they come to church with a smile on their faith, face. But inside, their heart is broken because they continue to fall. They continue to fail. And then they wake up one morning and they say, you know what? This Jesus thing just ain't working out for me. I'm on to something else. And the whole time Jesus is standing there going, what are you thinking? You can't do this on your own. That's why I'm here. You can't get this on your own. That's why I'm here. And when you're ready, when you're finished trying to get this all figured out in your own strength, in your own determination, in all your own striving, when, you're fin when you've come to the end of yourself, here I am. And I will show you a way to peace and life. What does he say? Come to me, all you are weary and burdened. He's talking about religion. Come to me, all of you that burned out on this religion and trying and striving and working, and you will find rest for your soul. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, 
because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time. The time frame he's talking about is after the cross. After Jesus died on the cross. After that time. Because the cross changed everything. The cross changed everything. It was God fulfilling what he had promised. And he says that he's going to take this law and he's going he's to put it in our brains and our minds. He's going to write it on our hearts and he's going to be our God and we are going to be his people. If you go all the way back into the book of Deuteronomy, uh, God gave some pretty creative ways for the people to remember the law. He told them, Make t-shirts and print it on the front and back and, and, and make coffee mugs and put it all over the coffee mug and, and oh, tattoos are gonna become popular. You should get it all tattooed. No, not really. Anyway, so, but, but he did give some creative ways. He said, write it on your hands so you're, when you're working, you see the law. Write it on your doorpost so as you're coming and going, you remember. Write it on the gates, the, the post of your gates so you'll see the law. Write it on, on, on pieces of paper and put it in a little wooden box and strap that wooden box to your forehead so you remember. It's hard to forget something that's strapped to your forehead. But this, was, this is what God encouraged the people to do so that they would always remember how the law instructed them to live their lives. And I would say that they always remembered how they fell short each and every day of following what the law said. But now there's a new covenant that is established. Jesus is the new way. He's the superior way because he goes beyond external. He goes beyond what is behavioral, beyond the surface, and he gets to the heart. He will write the law of God into our hearts. It will be within us. It will become part of us. And we no longer have to Focus on failing and falling and the guilt associated with it because he will remind us of the scandalous grace of the cross. See, the law brought condemnation, but Jesus brought grace and truth. Grace and truth. And that's where transformation takes root in God's grace and truth by the finger of the Lord writing his law on your heart. When the finger of God touches anything, it changes. It changes. Those of you who walk with Christ, maybe you can think five years ago, something you struggled with. And, and today, it, it doesn't seem as, as predominant in your life. It's, it doesn't seem to be a problem. It's not because you have overcome it. It's because the finger of God continues to write his good, holy, sacred law into your heart. And that's what transforms our behavior. Not us trying and striving. It says, I will be their God. They will be my people. You know, every human being wants to belong to something, to someone, to somewhere. It's kind of how we're wired. A gang mentality thrives on that. Gangs recruit people because they, they're lost and they have nothing or no one. 
but they come into this gang and now they belong. And sometimes the gangs are, well, I guess if you're called a gang, it can't be good, uh, but they could be violence, illegal, and yet these men and these women become part of it because they, they desire to belong to something. They want to know that someone has their back and they want to be able to have someone else's back. Loneliness kills people, either slowly or quickly, but it kills people. We are designed for relationship. We are designed for togetherness. And here God is saying, we belong to him. Ultimately, we belong to God. He is our God, and we, the church, are his people. Our identity is found in him. Our purpose is found in him. Our value is found in him. Our worth is found in him. Not what the world dictates or defines, but in him and him alone, in the gracious work of Christ on the cross. That's what he accomplished. We are his, and nothing Nothing in heaven, in earth, under the earth, in the sea, heaven, hell, angels, demons will separate us from that love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That's his promise. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. This is not... This is not saying that we are going to come to a point, well, eventually we'll when Jesus comes back, but right now we're not getting to the point where we no longer have to share the grace and mercy of God. No, we do. But what this is getting at is, is the whole idea of earning our way to the greatest or least. You know, it's saying, it's, 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 it's poking holes in this idea of I'm more holier than you because I have an office in the church and I read more and I pray more, and I've been doing this a lot longer than you have, and so by that equation, I'm holier than you are, and I hope that eventually, someday, maybe you'll be able to catch up to where I am. And I should tell you about God because, well, I'm holier than you are. He's saying, no, 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 see, see all will know me. From the Christian who's been a Christian for 50 years to the Christian who's been a Christian for 15 minutes will know the Lord. I remember the day that God got a hold of me. I was at a Methodist church. Dana, take notes. This is a little bit, but I'm not going any farther than that. She breaks my stones about, what's your testimony? What's your testimony? So I'm not telling you my testimony unless I get 60 lunches. She's not even gotten two yet, but anyway, I digress. So I'm at the altar of this Methodist church at this healing um, service, after the service. And God got a hold of me. And then there was a moment there as I was kneeling down where, where I, I knew Jesus. And, and, and at that time, I couldn't explain it to you. I had no idea really what happened. I couldn't, I couldn't describe what receiving Christ was or, or any prayer that was prayed over me. I, I really, I, I didn't know what took place. But one thing I did know, I knew Jesus. I knew him. Something ignited in my spirit. And, and it was, it was, there was a, a moment of, of a flash and it just, something changed and I knew Jesus. And I, I'm spending the rest of my life getting to know him more and more and more. But in that moment, I knew. I knew. I knew. I knew Christ. And he said, man, in the church, we don't have to, we don't have to 
spread our feathers and, and make ourselves look good because we will all know him. We all know him because of the work of Christ. Those who would put their faith in him now will know him. And he says, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Wickedness is not something you do, it's who you are. Wickedness is kind of our initial way we are when we're born because of the fall. I always say that you, you don't have to teach children to be selfish, they're just born wicked little things. And you gotta teach them to share. I've never heard a parent say, you, you be selfish now. Ah, they got that tied up pretty good. And so wickedness is kind of a, a bent that we have because of the cross we've been forgiven. Because of the cross and Jesus and what he did is far superior to anything in the past. He will no longer remember all of the, the crap that we've fallen into in our lives. He won't remember our failures anymore. He won't remember our mistakes. He won't remember the trouble that we've caused in this world because of the cross. This is what he has accomplished. He will forgive our wickedness and he will remember our sins no more. You know, we have a lot of babies in this church and, and it's funny to watch them as they begin to walk because they walk like drunken sailors. And... In my 50 years of being alive, I have never once saw a parent as they're trying to get their child to walk and they're, and they're, you know, they take a few steps and they fall over. I've never seen a parent yell at the child for falling. You rotten little brat, get off the ground and try again. We're getting this before we leave. I've never heard a parent say that. They celebrate the two steps and they look right past the fall. And they pick that child up, and they laugh. Unless, of course, there's blood involved because the kid face planted on the corner of the coffee table. But that changes the whole scenario. But for the most part, they pick the child up again, and, 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 and come on, you, you, you can do it. And there's maybe a couple, and then they show people, look, three steps. And, and, and they look right past the fall. In fact, they pick them up, and, and it's like they don't even recognize the fall, again, unless there's blood involved. Isn't that a beautiful picture of Jesus? That he celebrates the one or two steps toward him. And he doesn't remember the fall. And he picks us up and he dusts us off. He says, come on, try again. And whether it be one step and a rest or just completely off kilter, out of balance, it, it doesn't matter. He celebrates the steps toward him and doesn't remember the fall. This is the accomplishment of the cross. This is the scandalous grace of God that our God serves us and celebrates every off-balance, ridiculous-looking step toward him and because of the cross, remembers our fall no more. And the last verse by calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. 
I always find it interesting that we, uh, we talk a good game of grace. And, and I've noticed many Christians, the majority, are very, uh, you know, if you've come to a place of uh, allowing the Spirit to transform you, there's a certain amount of grace that you will extend to others. We're all very graceful to each other. But I find it interesting that we beat the death out of ourselves. We like to hold on to that law. It, it gives us something to measure other people by. Like, man, I'm, I'm glad I'm not that dude. He's messed up. But I'm not so bad. And so we like to hold on to it and, 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 and kind of just manipulate it. And, and, it's, and, it, and it gives us statistics to live by and, and kind of hurdles to jump over. Or, you know, the, the, it just gives us something to measure life by. It makes us feel comfortable. But it doesn't bring life. And grace, on the other hand, grace is scary because we can't, we don't control God's grace. It's out of our hands. It doesn't make sense. And if you really begin to understand grace, it is a scandal. Grace is the biggest scandal ever. But one day, one day, there will no longer be this thing we call the, the law. One day, there will only be the scandalous grace of God. Period. Because what is done, what is old, what has become obsolete will disappear. And we will understand the full measure of his grace as the church spends eternity with him. I want to offer to you again, as we do every week, if something has kind of resonated in your spirit today, we've got some people around that want to pray for you, pray with you. You don't have to rush out of here. Stay as long as you want. Leave quick. Doesn't matter. But if the Lord is doing something, don't rush out. Don't put it to bed. Don't deal with it later. Deal with it now. Father, we thank you that your word is true. We thank you that it's good and righteous. And now empower us to be men and women of grace, to live into it and to give it away. We praise you for your love. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Hey, I love you guys. We'll see you next week.